This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tanis, sent to herald the coming of the sun. chaos we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos over the next hour marvin hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer more equal society community or chaos is made possible with the support of quakers aotearoa you'll find them online at quaker.org.nz Well, good day, friends. Welcome back to Community or Chaos, hopefully mostly community. We have with us Professor Robert Patman, who's a leading New Zealand uh, academic in the field of international relations and American politics. Well, welcome back to Community or Chaos, Robert. Morena, Marlin. It's a pleasure. You can uh, podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasts and then going to Community or Chaos. And this program should be on by the end of the week or at the latest, the beginning of next week. And you can catch almost anything we've done this year on podcast. Well, Robert, could you talk about the recent foreign policy school? You've been having a foreign policy school for some time, haven't you? Yes, this was the 55th um, since Arnold Entwistle established this weekend forum for discussing foreign policy. The idea behind establishing the foreign policy school, as the term school suggests, was that it was to be a get-together between academics, uh, policy makers or policy practitioners, and the interested public. And the idea was was to nurture and develop a debate on international affairs back in the mid-60s. So that was the motivation for doing it, but it's now grown into a fully-fledged international conference, although it retains its uh, original name. But the purpose is still the same. We like to look at issues which are topical and contemporary and relevant to New Zealand, but we also like to issue, look at issues slightly over the horizon, which are looming on the foreign policy front. And the, the most recent foreign policy school, the 55th, we looked at uh, New Zealand foreign policy um, in uh, the era of COVID-19. And uh, we did this in several ways. Uh, we invited the foreign minister to speak and set out her vision of foreign policy. We also had contributions from a number of international speakers, including 
uh, Kirk Campbell, who is uh, the Asia coordinator for the Biden administration, and a number of other high-powered speakers who spoke on uh, trade and uh, political aspects of New Zealand's foreign policy going forward. And uh, we also concluded the afternoon, um, the final afternoon of the conference, with a panel which addressed this issue of whether, how does New Zealand go forward? I think we all agreed that um, as a result of COVID-19, which is a disruptive event, uh, the, the new normal will look quite different to um, the, the previous period before COVID-19. I think there was a consensus amongst all present that there's been no going back really. But the question is, how does New Zealand go forward? And uh, we, there was a view that we're at a bit of an inflection point in terms of formulating our foreign policy. And that was an interesting session where people gave their ideas about how New Zealand might frame its future foreign policy. What were some of those ideas? Well, there was an idea that uh, Professor Anne-Marie Brady, who is a leading scholar on China and has been quite outspoken, uh, but I think justifiably so, on China's activities in the Pacific, but also in New Zealand, suggested that uh, since China plays puts enormous emphasis on uh, uh, non-interference in domestic affairs, that's the thing, the fra- refrain it, it constantly uses when asked about Taiwan, Hong Kong, or activities involving the Uyghurs within China, that should be the same standards should apply to China in its activities externally. Uh, so there should be no double standards on the doctrine of non-interference in, in, in domestic affairs. That was a position taken by uh, Amory Brady. Uh, we also um, had uh, Marion Crenshaw, um, and she, she spoke, who's a Pacific specialist, about the need uh, for New Zealand... Uh, to remain active in the Pacific, but also uh, to play an active role, um, but a supportive role in that region, a region which is facing considerable challenges, not least from climate change. And literally, climate change, um, we all know it's unfolding more slowly than COVID-19, but actually is ultimately much more dangerous. And in a sense, you know, the Pacific Islands region, although it's contributed very little to climate change, uh, stands appears to be uh, directly in the firing line from climate change. And finally, I, I suggested uh, as part of the panel uh, that New Zealand um, should, in fact, be forward-leaning in its foreign policy. We have, in my view, um, an unprecedented opportunity following the appalling events of Christchurch in 2019 uh, when the New Zealand government was widely perceived to have reacted in an admirable fashion to that terrible tragedy in which 51 New Zealanders lost their lives and also the way this government has handled the COVID-19 crisis I think we now have an enhanced international profile and I suggested in my presentation we should use that profile to align ourselves with uh, a number of small countries and middle powers to push for those things which we think are very important, not least upholding a rules-based order at a time when it's under threat from not only authoritarian actors but also populist actors within democratic countries. Well, we've actually... um, The Prime Minister's um, uh, integrity and her... um, Statures actually seems to have risen recently. She's uh, one of the chair people of a 
conference now on COVID-19, recent conference in Asia. Yes, and also she took the extraordinary initiative of convening a special meeting of heads of state within APEC, which was held last Friday evening. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. and so I, I picked up from listening to international representatives that the Prime Minister's held in very high esteem. Uh, as, one, as somebody said recently, she has walked the talk. Politicians often talk a good game, don't they? They often say what they're going to do. They say they've got a manifesto for doing this and that. But uh, as we've discussed before, Marvin, often what defines a politician is how they react to unscripted events, events which are not anticipated. And this Prime Minister has faced in the space of a relatively brief period of time um, quite extraordinary, unprecedented events. First of all, the worst terrorist atrocity in New Zealand's history in March 2019, and then the worst global pandemic since 1918. So this Prime Minister has been tested, and in the view of many of the international community, she's come through those tests pretty well. And I think uh, there's another factor here. It's not just a question of how well this sort of, this New Zealand government has done in the face of difficult circumstances. It's also a case that great powers cannot monopolise global politics anymore. They, if they could, they would, but they cannot. And their 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 limitations to to solve problems in an interconnected world um, is quite extraordinary. So we're engaged. We're in this international transition. It's a picture of both alarm and hope. But I think what we need to do, uh, as the prime minister has indicated, I think the smaller and middle-sized countries need to take the initiative. And there is a precedent how. Smaller countries can influence the international agenda. We saw um, New Zealand under Jacinda Ardern come together with uh, Emmanuel Macron's France, a middle power, uh, to launch the Christchurch call, which is now being joined by 55 countries. This was a call to curb online extremism. And the United States, a superpower, which originally did not participate in this initiative when it was launched, has now signed up. So this is an example of a small state collaborating with a middle state, taking an international initiative, and then winning over the support of a superpower. So we have to get out of the... I think we have to get out of this habit of thinking that unless it's less than multilateral initiative is launched by a superpower, it's not going to happen. We live in a a changed world where great powers are much more vulnerable and interconnected than before, and that the reduced autonomy of great powers does create opportunities for enhanced cooperation amongst all states. If the leader of a small or medium-sized nation is well-respected, in a way, doesn't that give that country an advantage? Because when you have an international conference, if one of the, the biggest powers takes the leadership, they may, just by taking them, antagonize the, the other great power. If you've got somebody like Jacinda Ardern from a small or medium-sized state, if they're already respected, they may avoid that kind of... Yeah, I think that's a fair point, Marvin. I I think that many countries like New Zealand because it's seen as a country with a few axes to grind. But, you know, while there is an opportunity there for countries like New Zealand and like-minded partners, 
um, to have much more influence than they did in the past. We have to, I think, qualify this opportunity by saying there are huge structural impediments to small players like New Zealand and other smaller players and middle powers. I mean, we are talking about the vast majority of countries in the international system. I call them the silent majority. Because sometimes when you pick up newspaper articles and read them on the internet or lift, you know, read them in print, you often get the idea that the world is determined by the United States and China and Russia. Well, that, that is actually far from reality. But there are some pretty strong structural impediments to the majority having more say. One of the biggest, as we've discussed before, is the fact that five countries have a veto on the UN Security Council. And I'm afraid that does have to come up for discussion in the 21st century because the UN Security Council is dysfunctional at the moment, witness its virtual impotence during the COVID-19 crisis. And the problem is that the P5 group can block international initiatives, but they can't actually solve the problems which they're preventing an international initiative to. So we're in a sort of falling between two stalls scenario, and it seems to me that we need to have much more effective and international Institutions which are accountable, of course, to uh, the majority of member states within the international system. But we're far from that at the moment. So uh, going back to your question, Marvin, I think there is an opening for small and middle powers globally. But uh, can we seize the moment? Can we, make, can we extend the rule of law internationally? Well, we will have to overcome obstacles like the, the fact that five countries have a privilege that no other country in the world has, which is they can block anything they don't like in the major body, the major international body for determining, or, uh, uh, which is responsible formally for upholding um, uh, peace and security in the world. While you were at the conference, and probably before that, you met our new, relatively new foreign minister, Naomi Mato. I'm probably mispronouncing her name. Nanai Mahuta. Nanai Mahuta. And what do you think of her? What's interesting? How is she? It's an interesting appointment uh, made over you know, about a, almost you know nine months ago now. Um, I, I think there's signs that uh, Nanai Mahuta is growing into the role, and what is becoming evident in her speeches. Um, is the fact that she wants to link, and she believes it's essential, and I think actually there's a lot, I think it's quite compelling what she's arguing, that the recognition and squarely addressing past injustices in New Zealand is part of the process of giving our foreign policy credibility and weight internationally. And that is to say we can't just stand for human rights externally and not also address issues that relate to human rights at home. And I think this is a key thrust. I mean, I think if you want to summarise in a quite a concise way what's distinctive about the foreign policy, and I think it's a foreign policy team now of uh, Jacinda Ardern, who has a keen interest in global affairs, as she revealed to the public last Wednesday in, in, in Wellington, I think the Ardern-Mahuta team have established a much closer linkage between our domestic core values 
and interests and our foreign policy. You remember a few decades ago, one it was one I think uh, a pre- previous prime minister once characterised New Zealand's foreign policy is all about trade, and in a sense that still applies. We are very trade orientated, but I think we want to see trade in a rules based system. And how and what's our view on those rules? Well, they they do have to be consistent with human rights. The um, one of the things that's come up recently, and actually the both Jacinda Ardern and uh, Naomi Mahutu have commented on all this is the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance because it seems to be morphing into something more than an, an intelligence service. I, my understanding is that the New Zealand government has refused to use New Zealand, uh, the Five Eyes Alliance, which is an intelligence-sharing arrangement between five English-speaking countries, the United States, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, and Australia. Um, Australia and New Zealand joined the Five Eyes intelligence-sharing arrangement, uh, in the mid-50s, so we've been long-term members. And by the way, just to clarify this for our listeners, it's an arrangement that's worked pretty well for New Zealand, particularly for a country which is small but aspires to have an independent foreign policy. Why? Because we arguably get far more out of this intelligence-sharing arrangement than we put in, because we have access to quite a, a large pool of intelligence. Um, we also have to contribute intelligence, and New Zealand seems to have some sort of responsibility for intelligence sharing that that relates uh, from information concerning the Pacific Islands area. Um, What was interesting about the recent uh, situation is that New Zealand came under pressure, or at least in the media, from uh, certain publications in Australia and the UK. Um, New Zealand was asked to back the Five Eyes view on China, Publicly, and the government responded by saying that they wouldn't, for the simple reason that the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agent is not a foreign policy platform. That is to say, Five Eyes is not simultaneously offering statements on Russian encroachment in the Ukraine. It's not offering statements on other foreign policy issues. So why should it issue statements on um, uh, China? Now, what's interesting, in the last 24 hours... New Zealand has joined other members of the Five Eyes and a number of other countries in the EU, for example, in condemning what it sees and has named uh, links between China's uh, state ministries and cyber attacks in New Zealand and other countries. So, what, But that's consistent because that is an intelligence-sharing arrangement. So, in a sense, I think the government... Um, is quite consistent on this. It says it's happy to issue statements on China, but not necessarily coming out of the Five Eyes. Why? The Five Eyes doesn't have a monopoly of concern about human rights and pluralist democracy. And besides, some members of the Five Eyes, from a New Zealand perspective, such as the UK, which is threatening international law with its Brexit, uh, and particularly the fact that it might compromise the Good Friday Accord, in implementing Brexit, which is a source of concern not only to New Zealand, but also to the United States and other countries. 
So there are members of the Five Eyes whose human rights practice and their commitment to national law fall short of our expectations. We have human rights concerns, for example, about the way Australia treats asylum seekers. So to cut a long story short, I think that's why New Zealand is happy to be a committed member of the Five Eyes Alliance, but not use that forum, an intelligence sharing partnership, as a platform for making foreign policy pronouncements in relation to China. Okay, I might play a piece of music and then we'll come back to uh, foreign policy. In the Huckanui Hills Standing on the top of those magnetic peaks White clouds billowed all around our feet Like white sails, Spanish galleons In the Gisby dominance Temporary sort of way I know that all things change Everything will pass away But it gives me permanence When I look at it this way Keeps my feet here on the ground Where I intend to stay To our lives and times away Some may only stay here for one day But the truth they bring, the hope they share The wisdom they pass on Holds us for a moment, it opens up our way And it gives me permanence A temporary sort of way I know that all things change Everything will pass away But it gives me permanence But I look at it this way Keeps my feet here on the ground Where I intend to stay Changes and nothing stands the test of time. But we all need to find a place where we can stand. A permanent place for a temporary stay. And it gives me 
permanence Temporary sort of way I know that all things change Everything will pass away But it gives me permanence When I look at it this way Keeps my feet here on the ground Where I intend to stay Ooh. Well, friends, we're talking with Professor Robert Patman about foreign policy and New Zealand's um, balancing between her her self-interest in trade, but also her relations with China, Australia, and the U.S. and America, and in a time of change. In some ways, wasn't COVID-19 um, a taste of the future? I think so, because, and also a taste of the past, because what we've seen in the post-Cold War era, and it hasn't always been widely recognised, is a growing number of problems that do not respect borders. Let's just look at the pre-COVID period briefly. We had the, after 9-11, we had the challenge of transnational terrorism. Unfortunately, the immediate response of the United States under Mr Bush was to largely treat the problem of transnational terrorism as a problem which can be solved unilaterally or selectively with a few states. And I'm afraid the experience after the disastrous military intervention in Iraq confirms that problems like transnational terrorism do need to be dealt with through intense international coordination. And that sort of set the scene, really, for COVID-19. COVID-19 has come along and is yet another example of a problem which doesn't recognise borders. And unfortunately, uh, those countries which have persisted in a compartmentalised approach towards COVID-19 have probably performed most poorly in in handling COVID-19. And uh, so COVID-19 is asking some big questions of countries, how they define their national interest can they define it purely in terms of the boundaries or can they define it in terms of the wider interest? So some big questions being asked, and I agree um, with the subtext of your question, which is, you know, COVID-19 is actually um, a catalyst for change internationally. It's also, we're reminded that um, climate change is actually with us in a big way if you happen to live in the wrong place. And not just small island countries either. No, you're absolutely right. And And we are getting multiplying evidence around the world. Floods, not just in western parts of Germany, but in the Netherlands, to a lesser degree in the Netherlands, but Belgium, and also in New Zealand. And we've seen extreme weather everywhere, and I think the penny is dropping. Um, Scientists have been convinced for more than three decades, most of the majority of climate scientists have been convinced for three decades. But I think we are getting a growing consensus that there must be action, not just talk, but there must be action in reducing global 
uh, greenhouse gas emissions? Well, what do you think about um, how do we this was how do we deal with this? And we're in a situation with particularly with climate change where we need to have resilience and a certain amount of independence in our structures and trade, but we also need global cooperation. We need both of those things, don't we? Yes, and they're not necessarily irreconcilable. Uh, because New Zealand has an independent foreign policy, it can actually put forward an agenda which has been resisted by many of the leading powers so far. And now, Mr Biden has signalled a major change from the Trump administration. But remember, the Trump administration took the United States out of the Paris uh, Climate Accord. And before Mr Trump, um, Mr George W Bush took United States out of the Kyoto Climate Accord. So we've had superpowers not leading by example, not actually tackling the number one threat to life on the planet and citing national self-interest and economic interest as the principal reason. But you could argue that increasingly it's evident that one country's interests, such as the United States, is inextricably linked to the interests of other actors because all of them uh, will not be protected by the effects of climate change. And so really we do have to start fashioning solutions to problems which are commensurate with the scale of the problem, which is global. I guess one of the main balancing acts we're doing, one of the main questions we're having to deal with is um, China has become much more assertive um, in their foreign policy and their treatment of domestic minorities. And their example of Hong Kong does not uh, bode well. They're one that we've had a unique relationship with China in some ways early on. And they become our biggest trading partner. And even if we didn't trade with them, they're an important player in this area. I mean, in the, in the world, but particularly in the Asia Pacific. And the question is how, what's the balance? How do we deal with and how do we know how far they're going? Because the until we had the present leader, you could you could predict more accurately, I think. Yes, and I think really an objective of New Zealand and many other Western countries would ideally be see China to return to the sort of China that uh, preceded the emergence of Xi Jinping as leader. In other words, the pre-2012 China. But China's now a very different country for the reasons you've just gone through. Um, it would probably become more assertive anyway, who has, whoever was in charge in China. Why? Because China has continued to experience um, a momentous increase in its military and economic power. And 
in a sense, um, the 2008 global financial crisis was a little bit of a, uh, you know, a landmark for China. In China, was growth was uh, much stronger than most other c- countries after that finan- global financial crisis, and I think it may have resulted in China perceiving that its economic model, state capitalism, uh, was more competitive than the liberal democratic economic model or the neoliberal model sometimes called um, which certainly contributed to the global financial crisis Um, I think China's judgment may be premature but I think the other thing is that we shouldn't assume that everyone in China and particularly in the Communist Party of China necessarily agrees with Xi Jinping and I think New Zealand's position as well as countries like Germany and the EU has been distinctive from um, the likes of Australia and the United States because they've taken the view that we must continue to communicate with China and send the message that we will not back down on our commitment to um, core values such as pluralist democracy in New Zealand and upholding the rule of law and also protecting human rights. But doing so in a way which doesn't put China in a corner and on the defensive uh, why would they want to you know why has New Zealand pursued a more nuanced position because I think it's trying to embolden the critics of Xi Jinping in China now you may say there's little chance of that and that's a fair comment but the alternative is if every country um, or not every country but if many western countries rhetorically condemn Xi Jinping, um, there is the danger um, that Xi Jinping will actually be strengthened by that process. Um, it, it, uh, you know, China, in a sense, has to take stock where it, where it's at. And I, I agree with you. You mentioned Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, and also the, the, this quite disgraceful treatment of the Uyghurs. Um, from a Western point of view, and certainly from a, you know a point of view of a liberal democracy such as New Zealand, um, China has become much more China-centric, much more nationalistic since we signed that remarkable free trade agreement with China back in 2008. And um, I don't think this country will accept a master-servant relationship with China. Just because China's emerged as our number one trading partner, that doesn't give China the license to dictate to us what we can and can do, cannot do. So, uh, you know, we are heading, in a sense, on a bit of a collision course. To some degree, China can avert it. And I I, I still think uh, there are cautious voices in the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, which realise that China's own political interests lie in being a full and committed member of the global capitalist system. After all, China's rise has been achieved through its participation in the global economic uh, system. And by, you know, taking a belligerent policy, it does take, you know, this is something that often is not taken into account in the Western world. They People often assume that China's belligerency is risk-free for China. It's not. China's actually taking quite substantial risks with its own economy when it 
acts in a belligerent fashion. And I think this is something that um, analysts and also policymakers need to take into account. China's position is not invulnerable. One of the basic problems that China has, it wants to become a global superpower, perhaps the number one global superpower, but it has a deeply unattractive, a deeply unattractive political system. No one is queuing up to replicate a one-party state. And that means they are the leadership are conscious of this. So how can they be influential when they were handicapped by an, a, a, a political system that no one wants to emulate? Well, they use their economic power as levers. And as we've seen, that can be counterproductive. So China actually has quite a lot of tough choices it has to make about how it wants to go forward in the future. It's uh, difficult to expect the present leadership of China to uh, be open to major changes, really. Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, it's always difficult to read authoritarian leaders. Uh, A China specialist said China will never back down in the face of a dispute with other countries over what it sees as its core interests. Um, It's amazing what politicians can do when they're confronted with circumstances which threaten their legitimacy. Some of what China is doing is natural for a a large... I mean, you look at the United States when they became strong in the... but it's a different they world. Want, they didn't That's, want anybody meddling in the Caribbean. But, yeah, but it, the world wasn't globalized then. I realize that. And, and, and that's, you're absolutely right, Marvin. You know, in a sense, China is acting like an old-fashioned great power. It's emulating what the United States did, throwing its weight around in the region. The difference is, in the 21st century, we have a global infrastructure of more than 5 billion people on the Internet who communicate instantly. And the fact is that China cannot discreetly um, build a power base without consent. And as one China observer said recently, not so long ago, there's no precedent in history of a country which wants to become a global player, which is unpopular within its own region. And um, China has real problems in that sense. It, 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 it it's upset virtually all its neighbours. It's made claims to the South China Seas that most of its neighbours reject. It has poor relations with Japan, which are not entirely of its own making. And secondly, it has difficult relations um, with other players in the region as well. So, you know, we shouldn't overstate mm. China's they position. Had a minor war with Vietnam that's not well publicized over borders. Yes, back in 1979, um, there was a conflict between. And they actually had to back off eventually. Yeah. And I don't believe that China. Uh, I think uh, the reason I think China is much more vulnerable to economic pressure than many people realize is that China, and it's to its. You know, let's be quite clear about this. China has, in the last four decades, achieved an incredible thing they've raised or lifted something like 500 million plus people out of poverty and they've done that by becoming a very effective exporter of manufactured products on the global market which has given it lucrative trade relationships with big markets like the US 
EU, Japan. They cannot afford to turn their back on that. So while they may be becoming more nationalistic and China-centric, they still need the global marketplace. And um, I, 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 I don't see any, you know, the reason I say they need it is because the legitimacy of the Communist Party of China depends on delivering economic growth to its people. And um, many Chinese have accepted, or may, maybe grudgingly, the degree of interference they experience in their lives while economic growth and, and growing prosperity is taking place. If that should dry up because China is falling out with too many countries in the international arena, then there could be real problems for the ruling Communist Party. So, you know, we need to frame a policy which doesn't overstate China's menace to the rest of the world, but doesn't in any way disguise our abhorrence for a system which doesn't tolerate opposition at home and doesn't seem to take uh, the rule of law at home seriously or human rights seriously. Okay, we'll play some more music and we'll come back. the earth like a single rifle shot but no one's there to hear the beginning of the end of the world crack spreads through ice just like an axe through dry wood it opens up a chasm between what is happening and what should Cause if the ice shelf will tumble into the warming sea And the oceans they may rise until they cover the dreams of you and me uh -huh. And no machines on earth will stop it No cunning of the scientists Oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface The greenhouse is calling House is warming, the earth has given notice, she has given her final warning. One thing we must do is to support our politicians whenever they take steps to remedy this situation. of carbon we must do what must be done and meet the needs of this growing world by harvesting the wind and the sun cause if the ice shelf will tumble into the warming sea and the oceans they may rise until they cover the dreams of you and me uh -huh. The scientists, oceanic disruption on the planet's warming surface. Greenhouse is calling, 
Well, that was Simon Kerr and the uh, final warning about climate change. That was some time ago. We're talking with uh, Robert Patman, Professor Robert Patman. With the relationship with China, they have some major crises. They have the they need to keep their economy going. They need to trade. They need to. They're they're even they're more insecure about climate change than the United States. So China, the United States is having its problems right now. And I wonder if they're still saying that climate change isn't happening. <laughs> but um, if the glaciers melt in Tibet, um, you've got huge food problems for both China and India. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I think China's like many other countries. In, you know, to be fair, in, it's an uneven performance by China in relation to climate change. In some areas, they're leading the world in green technology. In other areas, they are continuing to invest in coal. Um, and, and, and you can see the dilemma for the Chinese leadership that they need to keep the economy moving. And um, at the same time, they want to be competitive in the sort of technology the world may increasingly need in the future to deal with climate change. And I think it, it, you're seeing an uneven performance there. Um, it, it, it's not a problem just for China, of course. Uh, it, it is, we, we are living through a period, Malvin, which I think we will see a major energy paradigm shift. And not because we want to, or many people want to, but because we have little alternative if the if if this world is going to remain fit for human life and that of other species. Do you think that well I guess our the major issue for countries like in uh, on the Pacific is how seriously uh, is the threat from China to Taiwan. Legally, they can, and historically, to some extent, they can complain, can, can claim that Taiwan is part of China. Hmm. And they've had agreements like Taiwan's not a member of the UN because of this, and uh, other agreements with major powers and treaties. Yet, Taiwan's become more independent economically. They've done well economically. Mm. They're one of the most educated countries in the world. And equality is fairly high there. Mm. And the, the, it's a very well-run and very democratic country. Uh, if one knows people from Taiwan or if one visits it, one tends to be impressed with Taiwan. Uh, so what, what they, they certainly wouldn't be a walkover either in any, if uh, they were attacked, but it's still a, they ha it's a major problem. Um, and China seems to have become more bellicose over this. Now, is this 
part of their foreign policy and part of the, the way they want the world to see them and to make sure that um, foreign minister doesn't become formally an independent state? Or do they mean to move into Taiwan in the near future? Well, to be fair, um, most of the international community recognise um, that China's claim to Taiwan, um, I think the formula that the Nixon administration used is still used by most American administrations, um, uh, that there's one country and two states. Um, and Taiwan, since it's become democratic, has become much more problematic for the Chinese leadership. If you look at it through the view, the lens of China's leadership, Taiwan and Hong Kong um, are major threats to authoritarian rule in China um, because not so much in terms of their military, not, not at all in terms of military capability. China's a, a, you know, the second most powerful country in the world after the United States, but in terms of ideas. And um, it's interesting to me that in the last presidential election in Taiwan, China quite clearly backed one candidate, but they didn't out affect the outcome of the election. And uh, that was quite a stunning reverse. There is speculation that China has accelerated its campaign to forcefully integrate, if that's the right way of putting it, Taiwan back into the Chinese homeland. And China doesn't recognise um, the prospect of any Taiwanese independence in the future. And American presidents have been careful to say um, that they do not support a declaration of independence because they feel that that would obviously probably result in hostilities and conflict. Um, so it, it is a dangerous situation. Um, an insecure, uh, threatened, or a, a leadership which perceives it's threatened uh, may become increasingly belligerent to Taiwan. And as you indicated in your remarks, um, if they did use force, it does have the possibility of the United States getting involved on the side of Taiwan, which could result in a, a dangerous confrontation between two superpowers. Um, the other thing is, and you mentioned this in your remarks, Taiwan is a remarkably um, economic, it's an economically dynamic, it's now a vibrant democracy, and it's got a very good defence capability, and it won't be a pushover. Um, I don't think there's any doubt the outcome will be uh, Chinese, would the Chinese mainland would prevail. But at what cost to China's international standing? And as I say, I, I think the problem is that China is still behaving like an old-fashioned superpower or great power in the 19th century where it believes if it flexes its muscles hard enough and with enough clarity and determination, everybody will eventually, despite grumbling, accept the outcome. Now, I'm not sure that's true in the 21st century. China has its whole rise to economic its whole rise to superpowerdom, its rise to global status, has been 
through the adroit participation in a globalised economic system. It could put that at risk. I've got another question. I'm not (coughs) sure anybody can answer this one. But can China change? Well, it's obviously they don't seem likely to change now in the next 10 years. Why why you say obviously? I mean, an authoritarian system never advertises... (laughs) change we'll wake up one day and find there may have been a change at the leadership but it wouldn't be advertised in the front likewise we won't be tipped off when mr putin unceremoniously departs the kremlin authoritarian systems never it's very difficult to know in advance and that's the frustration for democratic observers but russia tried to change under gorbachev yeah unsuccessfully i would say in some and also under yeltsin as well yeah and what you ended up with Putin. And I think that also their experience under Yatsons, particularly economically. The oh, sure. The, the, the people's was not a, a, a comfortable time at no, all. Definitely. And so you can see why China doesn't want that. Can they change in a gradual way? Is that a possibility? Well, that so far... I think many people have been awestruck, and and, and I think almost justifiably so, by the fact that China has retained control of the commanding heights of the Chinese economy, and yet has been very successful commercially. And that it's maintained a balance in that sense. But politically, there's no sign that, particularly with Xi Jinping, there seems to be any willingness to compromise. But that may be... My reading of Xi Jinping is this, is that he believes the rest of the world hasn't got the political will to resist Chinese ambitions. And therefore, he'll keep pushing. There's an old Leninist maxim that if you've got a bayonet in your hand and you encounter mush, keep going. If you encounter steel, draw back. And um, this is a regime under... Xi Jinping, but she's re- in many respects is a bit of a throwback to the 1970s. Um, the problem is that China is a highly educated, sophisticated society. And I, I think if China starts getting into major international difficulties with many countries, she will meet resistance. Uh, there'll be, there's already been sort of hints coded criticism to the leadership in China and uh, I don't think we should assume that Xi Jinping is completely free to do anything he wants I think that's a misreading of the situation Okay, well that's probably good news for the world Hope so, but uh, you know the, the present situation is worrying China's still a young foreign policy player in the current era, and we hope that it will drive, derive the lessons that it can't win on everything. Okay, thanks a lot, Robert, Pleasure. for coming on board. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.